0: Welcome inside the Celtics Lab podcast. Cam Tabatabai and myself, Justin Quinn, are here with Professor and Jeremy Duru to talk about the historic Wildcat strike that took place last Wednesday with the Milwaukee Bucks players refusing to play in the 2020 NBA playoffs. In response to the police shooting of Jacob Blake, a black man from Kenosha, Wisconsin. For new listeners, Professor Duro joined us ahead of the Disney restart to discuss the racial justice component of the restart and how players might encourage lasting change through the platform, uh, including exactly this sort of strike. The author of Advancing the Ball Race, Reformation, and the Quest for Equal Coaching Opportunity in the NFL, Professor Duro is an expert on sports law and its intersection with race. Thanks for joining us again to talk on this uh, momentous day. Uh, You're most welcome. Happy to be here. So, Cam, could you maybe walk us through uh, how we ended up getting here?
2: Yeah, well, where do you want to begin? I mean, I (laughs) guess we don't have time to cover 400 years of American history, but we could start with maybe the past few weeks. Uh, So anyone who missed our previous little conversation, basically the NBA players did have this moment of pause before restarting their season in Orlando where they wondered if given the racial existentialism that was happening in this country to put it politely, um, if going down in Orlando and staying in Orlando was going to take away from their ability to engage and the league and the owners were partners. They offered uh, the players an opportunity to express themselves on their jerseys with an asterisk, I suppose, uh, Black Lives Matter was written on the court. Players and coaches have used press conferences and post-game interviews to amplify messages around social activism and Black Lives Matter messaging. Um, and then this week, uh, things changed. I, at the incident with Jacob Blake and everything that came after, I imagine, ratcheted things up. And so early this week, Toronto and Boston had openly discussed uh, the word boycott was used pretty quickly, but it would sort of be more of a work stoppage or a strike and we can get into the weeds there, but they had discussed not playing their game on Thursday, the 27th to kind of raise awareness and to talk about what was happening, but also this very raw human experience. Um, Jalen Brown is a good example of, I just feel as an individual, I want to get out into the community Um, and maybe being here in this bubble isn't the way to do that. So I think that's an important part of the picture when we get into kind of really what happened next is uh, it doesn't seem like the players necessarily wanted to act in this unified, we are the NBA players, we are going to pause production. It was a much more individual, visceral, emotional feeling of, man, I'm a, a person in this world and maybe this isn't what I ought to be doing. Um, Wednesday afternoon, the Milwaukee Bucks, who had not been you know, reported to be having these kind of thoughts or had not been thinking them out loud anyways, very in short order after taking the court for pregame, ended up in their locker room and said, well, you know, we're not going to take the court. We're not going to play. And everything that came after snowballed very quickly. Um, the game eventually was postponed after the Bucks said they wouldn't take the court. The Bucks got themselves on the phone with the attorney general and lieutenant governor of Wisconsin. And meanwhile, you saw Houston and Oklahoma City players say, we're not going to play. We had uh, Los Angeles and Portland do the same, and then the league itself said, we're postponing these games, which is again this tension that we can talk about. Um, Late into the night, the players had a closed-door meeting first with the coaches and then just the players. And it was reported that uh, the Los Angeles teams in particular were going to leave the NBA bubble and effectively cancel the rest of the season. Um, But that they would quote-unquote sleep on it Um, now today at the time of this recording it's thursday the 27th the players have come together and said they are going to resume play uh there won't be games today thursday or friday presumably and they have had an audience with the owners and with the league about how they can remain in orlando continue to play basketball and use uh this platform whatever that means and i guess while i just wrap up the quick hits um as As far as I can tell, eight MLB games have been canceled in solidarity. Uh, The NHL today on Thursday has canceled its slate of games. The WNBA, which has been on the forefront of all of this, has also shown up big. Um, And even in the world of tennis, there have been cancellations in solidarity. So at the time of this recording, that's basically where we're at. I'm sure I left out major details, but uh, that would be the quick hits.
0: So... um. How are we feeling about this?
2: You
3: know, that's a huge question. How are we feeling about this? You know, the question is, what is this? How are we feeling about (laughs) the state of our nation? How are we feeling about addressing the state of our nation during a pandemic? How do we feel about the NBA players doing what they've done? How do we feel about the NBA even playing? I mean, it's hard to know what to feel. I mean, you know, none of us have ever endured anything like this. And, and when I say none of us, I mean none of us And this, you know, anybody conceivably listening to this podcast in this world, nobody was of age to be cognizant of things back in 1918. Um, and so nobody knows what it feels like to live through a pandemic. And very few people in our generation, really no one in our generation, very few people, um, you know, under the age of 50 have lived through anything like this sort of racial uh, reckoning. Uh, and so it's hard to know how to feel. And I say all that to say that the players we're just talking about, Cam, I think you did a great rundown down there. I mean, they're just like us. I mean, they're athletes, yes. They're better athletes than we are. Um, but they're just like us, they're human beings. And so um, for them to choose not to play, I think, is a very human thing. Uh, whether it's because they want to do something else to protest or whether it's because they're just not up to acting like it's a regular day when it's just not a regular day. Um, and I'm, I'm fine with it. Had they decided they didn't want to play and the season was over, I'd be fine with that. They want to play on, I'm fine with that. But at the core, you know, these guys are human beings, they're not commodities, and they have the same stressors, um, uh, uh, concerns, and insecurities that all of us
0: have. I think that's a really important point, too, is that they are, in a lot of ways, just like us, and that it is not our job, specifically us as an individual, to fix the situation any more than it is their job to fix this situation. And the fact that they were brave enough to really, I mean, you can say, well, they're millionaires all, all, all. And you know, to a certain extent, they have a certain degree of latitude, not all of them, but many of them have a certain degree of latitude and outlook on life that perhaps the rest of us don't but they are still risking the future of that i don 't think people really understand completely I mean many do, but many don't really understand the kind of peril that something a decision like this can put the entire house of cards that is the NBA and its media agreements and everything else that it has to navigate with in terms of salary cap and the scheduling in the middle of a pandemic and all these different factors, they took a very big risk. They, they took as big of a risk as anyone really who is risking their job to stand up for what they believe in, to stand up for what they need in this case. Because a lot of times it's not even about what they believe in. A lot of times it's just, as we've been mentioning, this visceral reaction. I, you know, I'm a white person and I found it very difficult to to write about this in a new cycle again And this is something that I can stop thinking about almost any time I want to um, if I don't want to be a journalist, for example. So to think of the fact that you have to live this way and every time um, something like this happens because of the job that they have, they are expected to be a spokesperson for their entire race and still have to deal with all these same decisions and emotions and feelings. Um, that the rest of us are dealing with and some of us are dealing with every day. It's just, it's, it's overwhelming. It's just totally overwhelming to me.
3: Yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, the, to me, the most poignant words I've heard over the course of the last several days were Doc Rivers' words. Yes. Where Doc said, you know, through a breaking voice, you know, we keep loving this country, but the country just won't love us back. And, I mean, it's just, it's just so painful, but it's, but it's so true. I mean, you know, it's, it's um, you know, the, the, the racial discord that we're experiencing now is, is nothing new. It is the predictable fruit of a society constructed on racism and on racism as effectuated through brutal chattel slavery. And for generations and generations, even since the emancipation of the slaved individuals, black people have been trying to love this country, wanting to love this country, and um, not getting the love back It
0: hurts. One of the things I think that is really driving this visceral response to is the understanding of the limits of what they have been able to do. I think we can all probably agree that the the limits of the symbolic stuff that they have put together in terms of the Black Lives Matter on the court, in terms of what we discussed last time you were on, um, that that, it's a conversation starter. It's a a norm setter. It does important things. It's not unimportant and we shouldn't minimize it. But it feeds into the sense of frustration when we see that the structural things, which there are, you know, we alluded to the $300 million fund that has come around because of this, um, the voting registration drive that people like Chris Paul and LeBron James are pushing. These things are going to also, you know, make an impact. But at the same time, when, when these things keep happening and it, it just basically, it, it almost resets the clock to nothing, even if it doesn't really, it feels like it does, particularly considering the fact that these people are alone, away from their families, who are dealing with all these other things going on and they're expected to be spokespeople, as I was saying earlier. Um, and they're, they're just people, you know? They're just right. people. And a lot of times, like, Jalen Brown is, is, is being a leader, and he keeps getting these questions like, well, what should we do in terms of structural, structural interventions? And I will tell you one thing. When I was 23 years old, if someone asked me what a structural intervention was, never mind what, I, what, what we should be doing in a situation like this, I wouldn't have the first clue what to say. And, you know, he's been graceful enough to to kind of kick the can down the road to people um, who, who have spent all the time um, that they have invested in, you know, creating these kinds of structural interventions and deferring to other people and saying it's okay not to know these things. And that in itself is a, is a kind of wisdom that, you know, I'm very impressed to see from someone his age, but I mean, he's his age. He's 23 years old. Most of these players are, are on the young side of 30. So, I mean, these, these are not necessarily the people that we should expect to have all the answers.
3: Yeah. Yeah. No, Jalen's impressive, but, and, but you're totally right. These aren't the people we should expect to have, to have the answers. Um, um, Which makes it that much more impressive that they're taking the stands that they're taking. The fact that the Bucks would sit in their locker room for three hours um, as George Hill said, uh, take the time to educate ourselves Educated themselves, they talked the issues over. They called Lieutenant Governor of Wisconsin. They t- called the Attorney General of Wisconsin. Thought through what they had to say, and then came out three hours later and gave a very poignant explanation of why they did what they did. We, sh- you know, we shouldn't expect them to be able to do that, <clears throat> but they did it, and it's impressive. And you know, <clears throat> and at the end of the day, may, you know, maybe that's um, just what it takes. I mean, you know, older folks haven't been able to solve this problem. You know, get this Rubik's cube right. Um, maybe it's the young folks with new and innovative approaches who are going to end up leading the older folks to a better place.
0: I think so. I, I, I do really like what I, what I'm hearing. You know, even before uh, people who have been studying things like this for some time, like us, um, have necessarily jumped in the fray. We are we are hearing. Um, calls from players, from from media, um, from from many different corners that people should partner with people who can magnify what they don't do well. Uh, people should be working up the chain to get uh, team owners to do more than just throw, throw money around. Because money is important. Don't get me wrong. This $200 million fund is going to do great things. But at the same time, they can also, as has been pointed out, pick up a phone and call a governor without the whole team having to strike. And the governor is going to listen. You know, and then you don't have to put the entire NBA season in jeopardy just so someone will actually listen to a black voice about life or death for black bodies. I, I think that that's super important to get that kind of participation, that kind of active participation from ownership if they want their their players to participate in good faith. And it, what, we still need to be honest, even though it's worked very well, is a big risk for them. What they're doing, being away from their families, being away from their communities in a time like this, even without the racial component, is a huge ask. And I think that you know, when you introduce other things like going down this, this chain of, of working together to local activists who have been invested in the communities, who have been in conversation with local communities in their home markets, um, and know the local politicians, know the local machines, know the local lacks and resources those are the people that we want to get in a position to be speaking, and the NBA players and their organizations are in an outstanding position to be able to operationalize this and I think that that is that is the thing that I think that we can hope for the the best thing that we can hope for coming out of this, but you know I'm open to hearing what what you guys think should or could come out of this like what are, what kinds of interventions should we be looking for? Should we expect? Should we be advocating for or asking others what they think about?
2: Well, I think Justin, there's a really interesting dichotomy here that uh, we'll learn more in the coming days, how true this is, but counterintuitively, I think the bubble itself uh, makes a true work stoppage. And I don't even think that's the right term, but that makes it kind of impossible. I mean, the NBA players, the reason I, I don't know that this is a strike or a work stoppage is that the NBA players are partners in this enterprise. They're not traditional labor. they, first of all, have 50% of the profits, but they're so much more than what we would think of when we think of labor striking. And then the goals are very different because they're not necessarily advocating for changes in their own workplace or changes from their own bosses. So I think that that's its own kind of sticky premise is how can quickly the NBA players say, you know, we're pausing this product to make change and then have the NBA and the owners who are kind of on the opposite side of the table kind of float the bill because every day that they're at Disney, the owners and the NBA are ponying up a ton of money. And so if this say wasn't happening during COVID and the Celtics didn't want to go to TD garden and put on the product until certain changes were made, that's fine because no one is necessarily paying for their existence in perpetuity. But right now the NBA has this bid, which is you can't stay in Orlando and uh, negotiate with us because this is our bubble. It's not yours. And so theres I don't know much about that tension, but I suspect that might have made things move a little faster than they otherwise could have uh, or would have rather. See, that's um, true.
0: I, I, I don't want to interrupt you too much, but just to inject this thought, it is true. They have them over the barrel. But conversely, there is something to consider. We can talk about this later. Um, The league also could have them over a barrel longer term based on the ambient environment, but I digress.
2: Right. And so, I mean, I think it's interesting because like the Steve Bombers and the DeVos family and some of these really high profile owners, it's not just that they could contribute more money to voting initiatives and things like that, but they are the machine that uh, propagates systematic racism. Um, Bomber, for example, I mean, not he specifically, but his technology helps fund the the prison system in this country, and ICE uses Microsoft too. And so uh, I don't know that Jalen Brown or Trey Young or these young NBA stars or even the older ones, Chris Paul and LeBron, it's their job to get into the weeds of, hey, what are these billionaires doing on a day-to-day basis? Um, so it's interesting just in the past 24 hours to see all of these different phrases of conversation that are happening. That's so much bigger than the players themselves. And just having this moment of pause, I suspect is a net positive for that reason that we're having these intense conversations.
3: Yeah. I'm really glad you said that Cam, because I agree. I mean, having this, this, having this moment alone is a positive. Do the players hope something will come out of it? Something uh, tangible society altering uh, certainly uh, do those of us who care about systemic racism being dismounted hope that something will come out of this tangibly uh, absolutely um, but uh, and you know and you know you, you you've mentioned can you know uh, avoiding substantial uh, uh, <clears throat> deeply impactful voting uh, um, initiatives could do it uh, I think uh, there was a study that came out that NFL players, I think a third of them as of last year were registered to vote. I'm not sure about NBA players but I've heard the number is low and so it's not just those players getting um, registered but those players doing it publicly inspires others who look up to them to get registered. So of course there's registration uh, to vote, Um, all sorts of questions about um, policing and the type of policing um, uh, that can be impacted by state legislation um, you know, perhaps uh, uh, we can get some, some some of that impact coming out of this, um, but and I hope we do. But if we don't, the fact that these young individuals were able to stand up and make this, and become activists at a young age and see the strength of their voices, um, see that they can shut down, at least for a little while, a massive industry is empowering. And I think that will will fuel them to be impactful um, uh, activists as they get older, leave the game, and go on to do other things. So even if it's just the, we'll call it the wildcat strike, we can talk more about what we should call it legally, but even if it's just that, forcing people to think about what's happening in this country, that is, Cam, I agree, a net
1: positive.
0: So about that um terminology why is it important well you know it's interesting you say you asked that just so i'm not i don't know how
3: important it is i mean the, you know there are distinctions the question is is are these distinctions with a difference in this moment some people have argued very vociferously that there is a difference um uh, uh aoc for example has talked about the importance of us discussing this as a strike as opposed to a boycott and i understand the point she's making as a legal matter um it would seem to be a strike, a wildcat strike. A wildcat strike, as opposed to a regular strike, um, is a strike that's kind of initiated by employees without the unions um, uh, uh, go ahead. Um, uh, uh, it's not really a boycott, because boycott is more refusing to engage another entity economically or socially. So it's not really that. Um, but a strike, uh, generally, and Cam, referenced this, um, uh, is it either an economic strike, basically calling for higher wages or better economic terms from employers, or an unfair labor practice strike, which, you know, is a strike where you're um, demanding that the employer stop doing something illegally, like a situation, let's say, when an employer is not paying overtime for overtime worked. Those are the types of strikes we normally see, but that's not what's happening here, as Cam indicated. I mean, what we have here is um, a strike, we'll call it for the moment, that is that, that, that really has nothing to do with the, the terms and conditions of the employees working, but it's calling on the employers to do something else outside of the relationship between the employees and the employers. So really I think what this is more generically is a protest. It is a protest in which these employees are refusing uh, 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 to work. And I, you know, to me, that's a term that, uh, that, that covers the basis. But the reason I say it's not that important, well, the reason I say it's not ultimately important is the moment is bigger than what we call it. You know, I, to me, you can call it a strike, a wildcat strike, which I think is accurate. You can call it a protest, which I think is accurate. You can call it a boycott, which probably isn't accurate. But the bottom line is you have these young individuals refusing to participate in something because they want something to happen. And that's what's important. It is at, core, uh, at its core a protest.
0: I agree. I think that really the only important element of it for me, apart from just you know, being a little bit clearer with, with, with how you describe it. Um, is just to acknowledge the fact that these people took risks in a way that is much less passive than a boycott. However we think about a boycott, it's okay if people want to use that if that becomes a term, as long as we understand the risks that these people took and as long as it doesn't dilute or whitewash what ended up happening, which is the concern, I think, with using the term boycott because it sounds very passive and it makes it very easy to say that the games were postponed and not that they postponed the games. And... Ultimately, it's much less important than the things that they are, are pushing for. But I do think it is important to make sure that we, we grant the people credit behind this, uh, the, full, the full credit for, for the risk that they took in doing this.
3: Yeah, that's a fair point. That's a, that's a fair point. And I think whether you call it a strike or a protest, um, you know, the, the risk is embedded there.
0: What do we think the, the near-term outcome of this is likely to be? What should it be? I mean, like, where is this going, do we think? And where should it go? Well, you know, here's what's interesting.
3: Based on the trajectory of our nation right now, um, sad, sadly and tragically, we have no reason to have confidence that there won't be another police shooting tonight or tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And so that being the case... These players were on the verge of abandoning the season. We heard the Clippers and the Lakers decided they were going to essentially and kind of got pulled back. Um, if something like this happens again tomorrow, do we think that they're going to, you know, just stick to the decision that was made today to keep playing? And if it happens a week after that? I mean, I think it is, everything is so so tenuous right now. Um, it's hard to know, uh, you know, what will happen uh, next. It's deeply dynamic. And I, I just because it's been determined today, that the season will continue. I don't think we should feel as though it's a certainty that the season will indeed come to a, uh, you know, come to a
2: conclusion at the end of an NBA final series.
0: Excellent.
2: And I, think, I think also, what is at risk and with really the unfortunate reality that you're exactly right is this could happen next week. And I think it goes back to kind of what we were saying before is that this wasn't necessarily this unified moment for the nba so much it was human individuals reflecting on their lived experience and where they fit into the broader strife in society and so i suspect if god forbid it something like this happens again next week a month from now you could have players opting out on their own accord not that the NBA players, the Players Association acting of this unified uh, entity so much as players saying that this is bigger than me and bigger than basketball and I just got to get in there and I could see that happening. What's interesting, I think about LeBron potentially or reportedly being one of the people who is most likely to leave or most agitating to leave is that it seems like there are these kind of two veins right now and presumably people who are listening to this podcast are largely in agreement with the kind of things that we're talking about. I think there are kind of two parallel tracks that are uh, seeing two different solutions. One is really institutional change. Um, What are, you know, police reforms that can happen, or in the case of LeBron, how can we get more people to vote? How can we uh, improve public education? And then I think there's another line of thinking that says, you know, this is to its core rotten and, from its inception was built on genocide and slavery. It's never gonna work. We need to radically reimagine it completely. And it's interesting to me that LeBron is kind of in that former camp of institutional change, but maybe was agitating to just leave and, and completely walk away from negotiating or, or leveraging power. And I think that just circles the drain around this is a really emotional experience for the players and for the country. So I think we just have to really give space for the players to be imperfect here because they are athletes. And yes, they have a bully pulpit that's much bigger than us. But at the end of the day, they're just individuals like anyone listening to this podcast. And they're allowed to get things wrong. They're allowed to be contradictory. They're allowed to think one thing one week and evolve and change and think something the next week. So I don't, whatever happens next if there's another huge inflection point or not, I, I can't imagine it's linear. I can't imagine it's clean. I think it will continue to be confusing and messy and dynamic. And uh, I guess that's just the nature of the beast.
3: I agree hundred percent. I mean, I think there's just no way to know what's going to happen. <clears throat> and, and I think the point Cam made is a really important one there at the end, which is that, you know, these individuals need to be allowed to be imperfect. You know, they may take, you know, they may, you know, there may be a player who, who felt uh, <clears throat> last night that he didn't want to play anymore um, and he's now playing. And if something, God forbid, like this happens uh, next week, um, you know, that same person may say, you know what, I want to keep playing. And, and that's fine. I mean, I think that, again, going back to what we discussed at the very beginning of this conversation, we are all, all of us together in uncharted waters. And so um, I think we have to be consequently somewhat kind with each other as we figure out how we as individuals are going to navigate the waters.
0: I really like that. I think that, uh, you know, Michael Jordan was involved in some of the talks to bridge the gap between the governors slash owners, whatever you want to call them, and the players, and he really emphasized that that listening is more important than talking right now for a lot of people. Uh, I think that is especially relevant to the media who is used to doing all the talking. and I think that we really should be focused more on injecting less of our opinion and allowing for more of their own voice uh, in their own voice rather than our mediated voice. you know mediate as little as possible. And again, just to to underscore what you two have also been saying that how important it is to allow people to be imperfect, allow people to not be heroes, and civil rights activists, and brave warriors against COVID, and everything else that they're being asked to, if not directly, implicitly, Uh, we need to give people space to be human and to deal with this however they're going to deal with this, I think.
2: Yeah, that's right. I mean, you could even hear the exhaustion in our own voices, and we're not separated from our families. We're not being asked to talk on this day in and day out. I think there is a lot of power that the NBA players could wield and their owners, like we identified before, there could be a real moment where the league uh, chooses to – change things in a big big way and at the same time it could be that these are people who are like every other american and people abroad right now are just trying to to keep the ship upright so i don't know what happens next i i suspect not too much uh, that you would identify as radical i mean not which isn't to say that this wasn't i know perhaps the most how much more radical do you want? <laughs> for century. Yeah. Uh, but it could be the case that basketball resumes on Saturday and the season plays out largely uh, without roadblock. And it could also be the case that we do this again in two days because something big, big, big happens. And uh, I just, I think we trust the players to do what is emotionally honest for them and, for their families and their communities, and we have to hope that the league and the owners support them in that, and the fans, because we, as basketball fans or sports fans, are also a big part of this too. Yeah, yeah.
0: Any closing thoughts? I feel like this is a good place to to leave it, seeing as uh, it's kind of an unfinished conversation, and I'm sure we'll be revisiting it soon enough.
3: Yeah, I guess I'd just say, you know, you know, I've been. As you guys know, I write about this stuff and I speak about it and I've been doing it for a while. And I actually predicted a couple months ago that there would be black player protests that would result in them not playing in, black athletes not playing in games. I thought that would come to pass when fans returned to games and players were heckled by fans from the the stands. and They walk off the field as we've seen happen in Europe. And it hasn't happened in that context. It's Happened in a very different um, context, but still related to the systemic racism in this country. Um, so I, I, you know, I predicted it, um, but I never, I, I kind of didn't think it would happen. Um, and so I think, you know, when you just said, uh, Dustin, you know, emphasize how radical this is. I mean, this is this is mind-bendingly radical. Yes. This is mind-bendingly radical. None of us ever thought something like this. Uh, you know, ask us a year ago if this would happen. There's no chance any of us thought any, uh, that this would happen. Notwithstanding the fact that there had been um, police murders of Black mode risk, you know, you know for years. Um, you know, during the days of, of the Civil Rights Movement, uh, uh, nothing like this happened. There were individual games that were boycotted. The Celtics, I think, led by Bill Russell, may have, uh, uh, the Black players on the team may have boycotted yes. a game, right? But... But for this to happen, is, it is mind-bendingly radical and, and expectation-shifting. Uh, and I think that's the one thing that we all have to, we should all ever listen to this podcast and keep in mind, that what happened yesterday, today, through Saturday, perhaps beyond, is, is history. And in 50 years, 100 years, people are going to be talking about this moment we're living through now and talking about how those players, whose names may have been forgotten to history, were brave to stand up um, against systemic racism in the form of police brutality. It's an
2: extraordinary moment.
0: Couldn't agree more.
2: And I would, I would just quickly add to that, and that nominally this is a Celtics podcast, so it makes sense we're focused on the NBA, but I think when we do uh, recount this history, 10, 50, 100 years from now, we need to make sure that the WNBA gets its due because as brave as the NBA players have been and are being in this moment, I think that Maya Moore and the WNBA was just a little bit a step ahead, if not in lockstep. So even we should shout out the NLB and NHL for their moments of solidarity, however calculated they might be, but we would be remiss for sure if we didn't shout out the WNBA for what they've accomplished in this moment and what they've helped advance.
3: Cam, uh, if I can just jump in, I think that's – I'm so happy you said that because without question, in this instance, it was an NBA game – NBA players who decided they wouldn't play, and then the WNBA, they canceled all their games. But over the course of um, uh, recent history and more uh, attenuated history, women, female athletes, have been leading – the fight, And the end, you talk about, you know, Maya Moore, who basically said, you know, I'm one of the best players in the history of this league, but I'm not playing this year at all. This is before any of this happened, before the spring of 2020. She said, I'm not playing because I have more important things to do. And so I think to shout out the NBA is hugely important. And while we're at it, why don't we shout out Naomi Osaka, who's the first individual athlete in this moment to say, I'm not participating. I'm willing to uh, concede the semifinal to my opponent because I will not play. So crucial point, Cam. I'm so glad you made it.
0: Anything that you want to plug before we get out of here?
2: No, I want to. I want to plug continuing to have hard conversations in your interpersonal life um, because I think that that's the least we could do.
0: Agreed.
3: Agreed. Yeah, we can't run from this. We have to engage it. <laughs>
0: The media listening, if any of you are out there, uh, be brave. You know, don't don't be afraid to cover things just because we're worried that people don't want to listen to them. I think it's pretty clear at this point people want to listen. Maybe they want to listen to it less, but, you know, we've got to make the progress for that to happen. You can find the pod on most podcatcher apps as usual. Please subscribe so you never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, please rate us five stars. If you don't like something or just want to make a suggestion, just let us know with a comment on Twitter or any article on... Uh, Um, Celtics Wire. Just use the hashtag CLPOD. We are always trying to bring you the deepest dives into Celtics coverage and in this case, much, much more. I hope we did something useful for all of y'all. Thanks for listening. Take care.